This journal entry is a little long, so I'll not be sharing any of my thoughts on the phenomena of biofilm, or how the invisible atoms which bind us together may or may not be out to kill. There's a little to talk about faith, drugs, politics, racial bias here, but mostly I'm just going to jot down the dailies. If you've read or listened this far, I'm happy. We entered Montana at the border crossing near Waterton Park in Canada, only a few miles away the romantic promise of Glacier National Park. Around us there was still the haze and smoke of fires from British Columbia to California. We were undaunted and drove our little red house into the rapidly changing landscape of northern Montana. We had a couple of objectives in Montana. One, visit Glacier National Park, do some hiking in the area, and spend some time with our friend Nathan and Bozeman. As is often the case in the pursuit of our objectives, they represent more of a general idea than an actual plan. Moments after crossing the border, I began to see warning signs. Watch for cattle on roadway. These cautionary emblems, while somewhat depressing, triggered a response in my stomach. I suddenly remembered what America was all about. I had a hunch we were very close to some kind of big, crazy steakhouse, and I wanted in. I asked Tiff, if we see a steakhouse before we reach St. Mary's, which was our destination for that evening, would you want to stop and eat? So Tiff is a vegetarian and is not crazy about the eating of cows. I'm not exactly 100% comfortable with it either. Frankly, every bite of beef for me is an outward expression of my own ability to compromise my moral ideals. Each time I'm hungry for these beautiful creatures, I embrace my own hypocrisy. With this embrace, I lend the warmth of my own tacit approval to the cold and ceaseless suffering of every creature we farm so brutally for food. My ability to pile on to the unforgivable suffering in the animal kingdom was greatly aided by the sudden appearance of the Cattle Baron's Supper Club in Bab, Montana. It's less than 30 miles from the Canadian border and resting on the edge of the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. We pulled into the parking lot and I could smell the unmistakable aroma of beef fat over fire. I was expecting cowboy ranch culture to dominate the decor of this large log cabin style building. However, the interior sensibilities were not done in the typical western chic I anticipated. Instead, there was a large bar complete with a whiskey barrel converted into bar stools with a bar top made of locally milled lumber. Those few elements were about the only elements in the place which struck me as overtly cowboyish. The remaining ornamentation in that not insubstantial building was done in what I can only call an impressively understated Blackfoot native style. There was a huge sculpture of a buffalo jump, which spilled out from a mural on the wall behind it. There was an enormous bison head mounted on the wall, and there were several other sculptures around depicting other sacred animals. A variety of beautiful feather head dresses were also on display. The staff was made up entirely of locals who had been raised on the reservation. The ownership was also native. To me, the soundtrack playing softly to the percussive and constant sounds of cutlery, conversation, and steak munching was perfect. A strange and subtle drum and flute music which seemed to meander through the dining room. By far the most impressive visual elements in the place, however, were the placemats. In front of each seating at the table were laminated sheets of 8x10 paper. Each placemat was different, and each carried some sort of message. We were seated at a four-top table when the waitress removed the excess silverware, small plates, and glasses we would not be needing. She did not take the extra placemats, however. In my opinion, those things were the floor show. I've always been a fan of the narrative history behind any old restaurant or cafe, 
but this was different. For sure, one of the placemats told the story of the restaurant itself and laid out a timeline. However, the other three placemats were relating timelines and a creation myth of an entirely different nature. The placemat which struck me most was one which looked like an essay, with a small photo of a wilderness scene and a great mountain in the background. The essay began with a bit of a creation myth intro, relating the significance behind the tale of the Blackfoot people as told by the beavers. These tales tethered the Blackfoot to his land, and created a sense of belonging to the land as opposed to being owners of it. As the narrative continued, the creation stories began to follow a new arc and point to the way of life a Blackfoot was meant to follow. The environment and the Blackfoot's place in it are still thematically important, but the tone begins to shift from a creation narrative to read more like an anthropologist's senior thesis. In order to really appreciate just how incredible this place was to me, I took a photograph of the document for you to read at your leisure. To be sure, this is the only placemat I've ever seen which quoted a psychologist or used the words individualistic organizational structures. Uh, side note, this picture is online on our website, mtp.dog forward slash journal. Ultimately, I felt like the essay was getting across the message that a bunch of uninvited guests had shown up on land which had never before known an owner, parked all their stuff wherever they wanted, and told the inhabitants to either fuck off or get with the program. The program, however, didn't jive with the previous thousands of years of cultural development in the current inhabitants' minds and created a great deal of trouble. Oh yeah, the steak was also fantastic. We camped outside of Glacier National Park in the small town of St. Mary's that evening. A heavy smoke was hanging over the air uh, and over what we could see of the park but the sky above us was clear and the air crisp. We slept well with a belly full of delicious hypocrisy and a head full of the white man's treachery. In the morning, I awoke to the sound of a truck heading up the hill where we were parked. We were just above the main highway and were parked on a bit of an overlook. The road we parked on stopped right where we parked, and we felt fairly certain we were not in anyone's way. Where the road stopped, a deep gulch began, so there was nowhere else to go. When the sound of this approaching truck reached me, I knew this vehicle was not heading our way with the intent of passing by. It was heading our way to interact with us. I opened the rear curtain, still under the covers, and looked out to see an older blue Chevy truck being aggressively driven by a man with long dark hair spilling out from a worn old cowboy hat. The truck got incredibly close to our rear bumper, and I could see the man in the old hat was probably in his 40s, with big white teeth. I could also tell he was highly pissed off. I jumped down from our bed to put on pants and go speak with this very angry man, peeking out again to see him take a small camera and photograph the back of our van. I then realized we were doing the very thing the placemat had talked about previously. We were trespassing on land we did not own without the permission of the current inhabitants. We were the privileged white people who availed themselves of someone else's property without a care for the consequences. I have to be honest here. I was incredibly disappointed to have had anything to do with upsetting someone who clearly looked like an Indian to me. We were in Blackfoot territory, and as such, all the land around us was theirs. Finding a couple of sleeping whites too cheap to rent some dirt from a local campground is, in hindsight, offensive. I then thought about it a bit more. If this was a white guy approaching me in this way, I'd be unlikely to feel so instantly apologetic. What if it was a black guy or a Hispanic woman or a Chinese person? 
Do my unconscious biases have that much sway over how I react to people? Before I could get out of the van and offer any foolish explanations, the guy in the old Chevy slammed his truck into reverse and backed away from us. When he reached the highway, he sped off in a big-ass hurry. Before I could waste any more time thinking about how weird a guy can act when his bias is in control of his actions, I moved our stuff around and got us the hell off that overlook before, as one might uncharitably say, the cavalry arrived. When we finally made it to the Great National Park, Great Glacier National Park, the smoke in the air was getting thicker by the minute. We made breakfast in the park and posted up on a beach on the shores of Lake St. Mary. It would have been an amazingly clear day were it not for the smoke. I strung up a hammock and Tiff laid out a blanket for her to lay upon in the sun. She also laid out a blanket for Pele to ignore completely while he walked all over the blanket she laid out for herself. In that hammock, I took the time to fully examine my bias towards the man I now assume to be an employee of the Blackfoot Nation who had no choice but to encounter our giant red van on his way to work. I've read a few books on native culture, Savage, Savage Mind by Jamaki Highwater and Black Elk Speaks by John G. Nyhart among them. I do my best to be careful not to think in terms of the noble savage, quote-unquote, and instead like to think of American Indians as human beings with whom I share a great deal in common, mainly the fact that we share the imperfect stamp of a creature who has a shitload of choices to make, and a complicated machine, i.e. the human brain, with which to make those decisions. So if a white guy or a black guy or a Hispanic woman or a Chinese person in his or her late 40s had approached my van in the same way as the native man had done, I would like to think I would have remained calm and kind. But underneath that gentle approach, my thoughts may well have been different depending on the skin color. I realized I tend to care a great deal more, great deal more about offending people with whom I do not share a similar, similar skin color. This, I recognize, is an absurd notion. Skin color is largely irrelevant to me in my daily life. I'm not aware of allowing or preventing any of my own behavior based on skin color. Yet when I reflect on how I might react if a white person did something I found objectionable versus how I might react if someone not white, quote unquote, were to do the same thing, I clearly have distinct feelings depending on the skin color of the person in question. As I search the land for a place to fit in, I'm also searching through my personality for blind spots. I'd like to send out a little prayer of gratitude to the Blackfoot Indian guy with whom I did not have to awkwardly interact. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to recognize my own absurdity. And may I react to all people, regardless of their skin, or skin color, with the kindness and patience I would have offered you or any other group I perceive as a quote-unquote minority. The park was crowded, full of smoke and not an entirely pleasant place to be. Also, Pele is not welcome in the national parks, so we headed south to visit the Helena National Forest. Full disclosure, we tried to visit the Museum of the Plains Indian, but arrived after it had closed for the day. Instead, we stopped at a grocery store on the reservation, filled our little refrigerator with food, and bought some mildly gaudy seat covers for the van at a locally owned gift shop. We drove back roads from the northern border of Montana all the way to a town called Shoto, where I met a guy who just pulled up to the side of the van while I was brushing my teeth and started talking. The guy was riding a bike, was in his 80s, and he told me, within two minutes of meeting me, oh, it's all bullshit, you know? I really liked this guy. I'm fairly certain most people think he's a crazy person. Tiff, who really needed to pee, but didn't want to be rude to the guy, 
was a bit tired of him by the time we finally took our leave, about 10 minutes later. I love little interactions like this. I honestly wanted to just turn on a tape recorder and release it to our audience as an anonymous man-in-the-street bit, but I didn't even have a moment to ask him. There was little time for my interjections between non-sequiturs and him telling me, yeah, I taught the CIA guys how to jump, smoke jump, but they were assholes and everything about it was basically bullshit. We eventually made it to the Helena National Forest and drove through a town I want to believe was named after a guy whose place in history I've mentioned before. York of the Corps of Discovery. I did not stop to verify this fact, so if you know this to be true about a small town in Montana called York, feel free to drop me a line. If you know this to be a false statement, please do not take this one from me or from York. Not far from York, a dirt road, heavily pockmarked and full of sections which our van and driver did not like, began. We took this road for several miles to a dead end where a fantastic trail and mostly empty campground were waiting for us. The road itself winds around Trout Creek, and in spite of feeling like driving in a large turd, uh, it's exceptionally beautiful. The road ends at Vigilante Campground, where for eight bucks we were able to spend the night in a perfectly legal campsite for once, next to the delightful Trout Creek and under our first clear Montana night sky. We hiked that afternoon for about six miles along the creek, then into a deep, narrow canyon which opened up to a small valley. We finished up our hike with a nude dip in the creek only about a hundred yards from our campsite. If you find yourself in that area, do yourself a favor and get clean in those crisp and clear waters. Pele agrees. Our goal the following day was Bozeman, to visit our friend from Memphis, Tennessee, Nathan. Now Nathan moved to Bozeman with his job. He works for a company called FICO. Now, of all the things I discussed with Nathan, topics like religion, politics, relationships, consciousness, dogs, old friends, and fistfights, never at any point did I bring up my feelings about FICO. I still will not be bringing that up, mostly because I don't want to burn the calories it would take for my fingers to fully express my feelings about the algorithmic calculation of a person's worth. What I will express, though, is that Nathan is a fantastic human being, and the place where he earns a living and the role he performs there do not in any way influence my opinion of my friend. So, we made it to Nathan's home after spending some time at the beautiful Bozeman Public Library uh, for me, and then Tiffany surprising me with a wash for the van. We plan on spending a little time with Nathan, seeing the sights, taking a hike or two, and then heading on. Three days maximum, or so we thought. We would end up being in Bozeman for a total of six days. We are very, very glad we did. That first evening, Nathan invited us into his home, introduced us to his incredible dog, Seamus, and made us feel right at home. He then took us to a barbecue festival, sort of, where we had a bunch of overpriced food that was quote-unquote not bad, and where we met his friends Skip and Andrea, and their little daughter, Barrett. We had fun, and ate a bunch of food, and I had to physically stop myself from taking a piss in a parking lot. Not because I had too much to drink, because I don't drink, but because I may be going feral and have become accustomed to being able to pull over on a trail or a highway and just kind of piss whenever I feel like it. That doesn't fly in a polite city like Bozeman, Montana. After hitting a few bars with Nathan, we decided to go back to his house and eat a little bit of some edible pot given to us by a friend in Alaska who specializes in making quote-unquote little green men. The little green men are made by infusing coconut oil with THC, 
spreading the oil out in a sheet about a quarter inch thick, freezing the sheet, and stamping him out in the shape of little gingerbread men. Little gingerbread men that will light you up like an old Christmas tree in a bonfire. In other words, these little things are magnificently potent. To be clear, I don't feel stone when I eat it. I feel high. Super high, in fact. I was not alone in this. Nathan also ate a little bit with me, and we ended up staying up until about 3.30 a.m. We started the discussion when Tiffany was still awake, talking about politics. The discussion, although Nathan, Tiffany, and I are not all exactly on the same page politically speaking, was energetic, fun, and not at all adversarial. When we drifted into the realm of whether or not there is a god, Tiffany politely drifted off to sleep in the van, while Nathan and I decided to dive in headfirst. Fortunately for us, the little green men reached maximum potency at just the right time. Nathan and I have wildly divergent views on how we think about the universe. I won't go into a full recount or explain exactly where we diverge, but suffice it to say I do not know if there is a god or some divine prime mover who gave the ball of its existence its initial pull downhill. Jesus. And Nathan is a Christian. I do not actively believe in a God who knows and or loves me, and I do not subscribe to any organized religion. I simply don't know what the deal is. In the absence of evidence, faith is just not an option for me. I'm a tad bit envious of the faithful, honestly, uh, as I can remember feeling quite comfortable believing in God before I began asking some difficult questions. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Nathan, and I am not a traditional atheist, and I do not wish to cast any negative feelings in the direction of the faithful. If anything, I applaud faith. My mother and stepfather are people of faith, and I admire that. The discussion Nathan and I shared was one of great mutual respect. It wasn't the typical stoner conversation with excessive uses of the words, dude, you know, like, or it's just crazy, man. Instead, we were exchanging ideas, listening to each other, and instead of trying to persuade the other or tell the other he was wrong in some way, we were on a search for common understanding. As you may have guessed, we did not solve all the world's problems. We did, however, briefly manage to share a truly spirited and fun exploration of our beliefs, ideas, notions, and biases. I truly long for that to be the norm in all of my discussions with others, and to be the norm when it comes to the way we speak with each other as a species. We managed over the next few days with Nathan to go to a hot yoga class, take a beautiful hike to Lava Lake, cook together, share laughs, and some really fun conversations. We're incredibly grateful to have Nathan in our lives and look forward to someday returning the hospitality. Our evening with Nathan, um, one evening with Nathan, we ended up reconnecting with his friends, Skip and Andrea. I had a great time chatting with Skip, who I found out was a music journalist, and I invited him to be a guest on the show. I so desperately respect real journalists and writers, I could not pass on the opportunity to speak with a real one. He accepted and was kind enough to feed me chili after our interview later that weekend. His episode will be out on Tuesday, September the 11th. Our friend Sally in Petaluma told us about a few friends of hers who lived in Bozeman, who live in Bozeman. Sally is an incredibly interesting woman who I've failed to interview before we left California. So when she said she had friends we should meet, Tiff and I agreed and we had to meet them. As I write this sitting under the Tetons in a handcrafted little studio space in a sunny, beautiful Moose, Wyoming, on the property of friends of friends of Sally's friends, 
I cannot even begin to tell you just how fortunate we are to have a friend like Sally. When she was in her 20s and living in the Bay Area of California in the 1960s, Sally and her husband decided, with a group of friends, to sail around the world. None of them knew anything about sailing, but with true ingenuity and determination, the little community of friends banded together, bought an old boat, which they named the Topaz, dry docked it, retooled the whole ship to suit their needs, and managed to sail it around the world for many years. I often think of Sally's tales from the voyage of the Topaz, any time I'm tempted to think we were on some sort of grand adventure. It was on the voyage of the Topaz where Sally met the friends she would later introduce to Tiffany and me, Steve and Mary Lou. Now, Steve and Mary and Lou were living in American Samoa, working in a cannery when a ship full of young people sailed into port. At that time, very few people were in, uh, young people were in American Samoa. So Steve and Mary Lou took the opportunity to go down to the docks and make new friends. Of all the people on the boat, Sally and her then-husband Peter were their favorites, and they've remained friends ever since. Sally and Peter had invited Steve and Mary Lou to join them on the journey. They were understandably leery of joining some sort of floating commune and declined. But as they watched the boat full of young people sail out of port, Steve and Mary Lou, who have now been together for over 50 years, held hands and watched as this little sailing community left them on their little island. As soon as the boat was out of sight, the two of them reached the same conclusion at the same time. They ran to the nearest office and sent a gram to the occupants of the Topaz, who were expected to land in Fuji, Fiji in a few days, saying, we want to join you. Steve and Mary Lou flew to Fiji, joined the crew of the Topaz, and sailed with them to New Zealand. Sally told us stories about Steve and Mary Lou long before we ever thought meeting them would be a possibility. So Steve and Lou, who have traveled all over the world, now live in Bozeman, Montana, in an almost supernaturally charming home. Steve is a retired river guide, and Mary Lou was an educator. At one point in their lives, when the two girls, when their two year, girls were young, they moved to Manuel Antonio, Costa Rica, to open up an adventure guide company. The business was successful, and they eventually sold and moved back to Bozeman. Uh, eventually, their daughters would join them. We met Steve and Mary Lou for breakfast at their home in downtown Bozeman and had a fantastic time. Steve made blueberry can pancakes from scratch, and we chatted the morning away. I asked if Steve and Mary Lou would be willing to be guests on the show, but Mary Lou, understandably, declined. Fortunately for us, when the conversation drifted to their kids, a small book was produced, and Tiffany and I marveled at the paintings of their youngest daughter, Michelle. We also found out that Steve is an artist, so I asked if Steve would like to be a guest with his daughter, Michelle. Michelle arrived minutes later with her gregarious little 15-month-old boy and agreed to be on the show. That will be released on September 18th. We took a tour of Steve's studio and fell in love with his wonderful paintings. When we made it to Michelle's home later that day to record the podcast, we were blown away by the scope and scale and emotional response we experienced when sitting with her work. The following day, we met up again with Steve and Mary Lou for a boat trip on the Yellowstone River. Steve has a beautiful wooden boat called a dory, and an inflatable craft was also in tow for uh, Mary Lou, where she took the first shift at the, at the row. Mercifully, the sun was out, the smoke was not present, and the air was as fresh and clear as any day I have ever known. The big skies of Montana were in full effect. Pele stood on the deck of the ship like an old pirate captain and menaced every flying insect who dared cross his tiny chompers. The sun warmed us down to the individual cell 
We stopped for a swim break and a picnic on a sandy bank and sat in the lap of the hills and mountains which surrounded us. That river trip will stick with me for the rest of my life, yet it is only one of the many things for which I will be forever grateful to Steve and Mary Lou. Steve and I rode in the boat together for a while as Tiffany and Mary Lou paddled together in the inflatable. As Steve and I discussed everything from travel to psychedelics to education, business, politics, and religion, I was struck by the way he handled his boat. The dory is not a small craft. There's room for at least four people, a couple of dogs, and plenty of gear. While it would be ill-advised to travel that heavy, the boat at least had space for it. In this vessel, one would think maintaining control would require a great deal of effort. When piloted correctly, though, the amount of effort required to get downriver, even a river with little rapids and rocky sections like the Yellowstone, is minimal. Watching Steve so effortlessly guide his boat into just the right space reminded me of watching the left hand of a skilled banjo player. Even as the notes fly out of the instrument, the hand looks as if it's hardly moving. I would later in the day take my turn at paddling the small inflatable kayak. I followed Steve through the lines he picked as he read the river. I found myself paddling backward and using entirely too much energy and effort to guide my little boat in any any meaningful way. I have a long way to go before I figure out how to let the river do all the work. When we got back to Steve and Mary Lou's home, Steve gave me the river shoes I'd borrowed from him and then gave me a book. The book is called Stumbling Through Paradise and was written by Steve after selling his business in Costa Rica. I highly recommend this book to anyone who either likes to laugh or has designs on opening any sort of business. It's available on Amazon. Of all the gifts and kindness Steve and Mary Lou shared with us, the opening of their Rolodex of good friends was by far the greatest. On one of our last evening in town, a friend of ours from New Orleans, Elizabeth, was planning on being in town with her dog, Cash. We met up for drinks and food and spent a few hours chatting at Nathan's. Elizabeth is also on something of a journey of discovery. It was fantastic to see her and how her journey was working its magic on her own worldview. As I mentioned, we were in Bozeman for six days, having only planned on being there for three. When we finally decided we would absolutely leave, we stopped by the hot yoga class for one more incredibly deep sweat got groceries, and headed to the Yellowstone National Park. We stopped in a little town called Livingston on the way to get water and take a little walk. If you're anywhere near Livingston, Montana, it is worth stopping. The streets are clean, charming, and full of bustling businesses and characters. We made it to Yellowstone, where Pele was only welcome to be anywhere cars could go, and stopped for a soak in the boiling river. The experience was mostly pleasant, as a cold river mixes with indecently hot water from the geothermal pools, which are sitting on top of the giant caldera, which will likely end civilization as we know it. Moments of pure delight are punctuated by moments of intense cold, followed by the boiling heat. We were surrounded by rocky hills, fragrant sage bush, brush, and a couple of adult female elk and several little ones. That evening we camped in the park, again paying for an actual campsite and hiked up to a small hill to look for animals and watch the sunset. We headed to bed early, as we planned on getting up at 4 a.m. to try to see a wolf pack, which is often seen in a nearby valley. At 4 a.m. we got up, moved a few items, and headed off to see the wolves. As it turns out, a 4 a.m. wake-up call is unnecessary. We reached our destination in about an hour, and the sun would not be up for another hour still. When... 
We did not see the sun. When we did see the sun, we saw many vehicles headed away from where we had parked. Tiffany drove and followed these vehicles to a large, sprawling part of the valley, where over a dozen cars were already parked, and nearly two dozen people with large camera lenses and telescopes were standing and pointing. We parked and walked up a small hill to join the group. Our binoculars were sufficient to pick out a few small moving objects, and one much larger, slowly moving bison. A delightful older woman who had parked next to us was kind enough to offer the use of her telescope. We saw about six of the 11 or 12 wolves which were hanging around and making the large male bison only mildly, mildly agitated. We did not witness anything more than the mildest charge by the bison and the light scampering of the two nearest wolves. Seeing their long tails and their slick movements were powerful. We were glad to be so far from them. When we returned to our little wolf descendant, Pele, somehow knew we would not be taking a hike with us, and stayed pretty mellow as we took a driving tour of the park. We saw moose, elk, and a ton of hilariously obstinate bison. We saw thermal pools, hot springs, geysers, yes, old faithful, and loads of beautiful landscapes. Unfortunately, each of these was done without the company of our little friend who was patiently waiting for us in the van. When we finally left the park, we made arrangement to meet up with the friends of Steve and Mary Lou, Amy and Lyle, and Moose, Wyoming. That is another story, which I will save for next time. Keep low and flow.